You're listening to an Anderson Entertainment production. This episode, stand by for liftoff in Fabvax. Well, sir, looks like there's going to be a gunfight in the randomizer. And recorded live in Australia, it's filmmaker Michael Shanks. Is that an Australian accent? Anyway, that's all coming up in Pod 155. Of the Jerry Anderson Podcast. Sponsor. Let's get started. Let's go. Spectrum is green. The Jerry Anderson Podcast with Jamie Anderson and Richard James. Well, I think we've probably uh, offended most of the population of Australia what? with that. Um, those What's impr- wrong with practicing our Australian accent? Why do you think they're any good? My mm, all right. Point taken. Uh, what do you think, Australians? Uh, uh, do email oh. us in. Email us in your reviews <laughs> and complaints to podcast at jerryanderson.co.uk. Oh, now, uh, my name uh, yes. is Jamie Anderson. And uh, I'm here because I'm the son of the late, great Jerry Anderson, and I'm Managing Director of Anderson Entertainment. Yes. Uh, Who are you? Well, I'm Richard James, and I'm here because I was asked. Brilliant. That's probably a better reason to be here than the uh, nepotism-based reason I'm here. Oh, absolutely. I got here on merit. Yes, you're here on merit. Also here on merit is Chris Dale. Yes, I should say so. Today seems to be writing a report with a rather large Uh, feathery quill on a scroll. Perhaps... That's a clue as to this week's randomizer. It is. Yeah, I have no idea. Is I don't it? know, but he's yeah, he's really yeah, scratching away there. He's got that lovely sort of powdered wig on as well, isn't he? Looks quite restoration. Yeah, Chris. Very nice. I don't know what yeah, you're up to, him. but yeah, loving it. Okay. okay. Now, yeah, uh, other than the randomizer, which he's clearly preparing yeah. for or doing something mm-hmm. about, which is where Chris sits down in front of a random Jerry Anderson episode and gives yes. us his comments and thoughts, and he'll be doing that at the yes. end of this podcast. What else yep. have we got in between then and now? Well, in between then and now, uh, we've got the first part of the aforementioned interview with Michael Shanks, YouTuber uh, extraordinaire. We've got some uh, Jerry Anderson news, of course, because as I often say, there's brand new Jerry Anderson stuff happening right now. Do you say that? Uh, we've I got Fab Facts. I do. That. Yes, yeah. no, I have once or twice. Uh, okay. We've got Fab Facts coming up uh, in a little while. And we, of course, have got some emails, uh, Facebook messages, yes. some YouTube comments. I yep. did mention that last week, didn't I? I'll definitely yes. read them out this week yeah, uh, from our lovely Podstrons. Yeah, yeah, I did. So, all that coming up. Well, I can't wait. But no, I suppose I we'll have to wait for all yeah. those things, except... Well, mm. For Fab Facts. Right. Now, time for this week's Fab Facts. It's Fab Facts, where I've got a book of Fab yep. Facts, and I flip through the yep. book of Fab Facts, and Richard yep. shouts Fab, and then I read you some, yep. something from the book of Fab Facts, and we hopefully yep. call that a Fab Fact. Yeah. Makes sense? Yeah. Good. Right, here we go. Fab! <laughs> oh, hang on. Careful. What? Well, you overshot a bit there. You carried on flicking when I'd fabbed. Mm, I'm not sure I did, but anyway, right. I make the rules, so. Uh, okay. Well, Richard, you've been watching some of the SpaceX stuff recently, haven't you? 
I have, actually, yes. Well, I'm sure many of you Podstrons will have been following the various SpaceX launches that have been happening uh, in Texas over the past few years. Rather cool. Mm-hmm. And rather Anderson-esque, I'd say. Um, yeah. The team have been experimenting with vertical takeoff and landing, as well as reusable, as opposed to disposable, hardware. Uh, think Thunderbird 3 more than 0x. In fact, yes. if you're a fan... It's hard not to think of Jerry Anderson vehicles while watching the various takeoffs, landings, and of course, the occasional Meddings esque explosions. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You don't have to look very hard <laughs> at the SpaceX heavy lift, fully reusable two stage launch vehicle Starship to see a certain resemblance to Fireball XL5. True, yes. And of course, we often hear that Elon Musk is a Space 1999 fan as well. He's tweeted quite a few Space 1999 things and clips over the years. Mm, yeah. But there's an even more direct link between the worlds of Anderson and the world of real-life rocketry than that. Is there now? Yeah. Now, Richard, what do you think of when I say hotel? What, what when you say it like that? <sighs> hotel. <laughs> well, I'd forgotten how to say it. Hotel, yeah. Well, that's uh, horizontal takeoff and landing, isn't it? I think. That is exactly right. You're on the yeah. right track. Yeah. The hotel project, I find hard not to say hotel, the <laughs> hotel project yeah. uh, was a joint effort by Rolls-Royce and British Aerospace to produce a spacecraft that could be reusable and more efficient than the then state-of-the-art American space shuttle. Mm-hmm. The project started in 1982 when Elon Musk was about 11 all right, okay. So, just so you know. Uh, oh, in, fine. So, yeah. In addition to some pretty sophisticated new ideas about using air in the atmosphere as a fuel on ascent, mm. HOTOL took off and landed more like a conventional aircraft than rocket, as its name suggests. Yes. Fully fueled, the vehicle was too heavy for its own undercarriage. Mm. I know that feeling. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the engineers solved this problem by using a detachable trolley which would support the winged rocket as it hurtled along the runway. At the moment of liftoff, this trolley would be dropped and Hotel would soar into the stars with a payload of satellites aboard. Hang on. What? Does that trolley sound familiar to you? Is yeah, that what you're... Just a bit, yeah. Of course, it's con- conceptually the same as the launch from Fireball XL5, which first aired 20 years before the Hotel project began. Yes. Unfortunately, the project never moved past the design stage due to lack of funding and a few design imperfections, although it remains a highly influential design. There are even those who believe that some of the design principles could be very, very useful in modern rocketry. Interestingly, Dad remembered meeting one Alan Bond. Bond. Oh, Alan Bond. Yes. An mm-hmm. aerospace engineer on the Hotel project and a founder of Reaction Engines who told him that he had fond memories of watching Fireball XL5 as a boy. Ah. So there you go, Richard yes. and Podsterons. Another case of a Jerry Anson series influencing real-life technology. There. Like it. Mm. That's great. Also, I think we should have more fab facts where you have to say the word hotel. Hotel is very hard for me to say, so I'd rather we had no more about it. But that is rather cool, isn't it? Now, you look at um, those SpaceX rockets that do look almost exactly like Fireball XL5. You know, is that influenced, do you think? Do we know? Can we find out? Does somebody, does a poster on listening right now know somebody at SpaceX? Can can they ask? Because it, it feels too similar to be pure chance. Yeah, you're right. Also, on another note, 
Another uh, note. Well, we do know, don't we, that, that Jerry was often quite dismissive of uh, his uh, Supermarination and his puppet series and so yeah. on. So uh, I should imagine when you meet someone like Alan Bond, an aerospace engineer, who says that, you know, basically he was inspired, had fond memories of watching Fireball XL5 as a boy, that must have struck a chord with your dad somehow, surely. Oh, I'm sure. Because, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was meetings like that that gradually made him a bit more happy yeah. about yeah, his, exactly. his puppet contribution and the science fiction side. Although I guess he, he would have just said, well, you know, it all came from a fascination with aviation and rocketry anyway, so it's only natural mm. that it's going to sort of feed back in. Mm. So there we go. Mm. Yeah, Lovely. interesting. Yeah, like it. Very nice. There you go. So if you're happy to continue, I think that brings us rather reusably to the end of this week's Hotel Fact! Hotel Fact! There's no need to mock my <laughs> impediment, thank you very much. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, you are, of course, listening. I mean, what else would you be listening to but the Jerry Anderson podcast? Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on whichever platform you're listening to us on and leave us a nice review and a rating and share us with your friends so mm. they get to hear us too and all that stuff. Please do. Thank you to all our wonderful podstrons who have been emailing us in over the last few days to podcast at jerryanderson.co.uk Steve for example says thanks chaps for reading my review that I left on Podbean we're nearly at the end of the first episode reviews of all Jerry's shows just stick spanner to go it's been a funny old year staying at home and writing reviews and quizzes for the Potter's Arms on the Facebook group and reviewing many of Jerry's shows again I'm looking forward to the five star five book when it's released and the many other merchandise that just keeps coming Mm. I may need a bigger house all the best from Steve (laughs) sorry Steve sorry about that yeah now Andrew Pixley got in touch to say, brilliant to hear Toby Haydoke chatting on the podcast. He's one of those likeable, talented, enthusiastic people that it's always a joy to be in touch with. That's nice, isn't it? I absolutely agree. Yeah. Great. Mike Hammond says, hi, Jamie. Now, this is a very long email. I thought I'd read some of it out. So my apologies to you, Mike. Uh, Hi, Jamie. I hope you don't mind the email, but I thought you might be interested in a little bit of info regarding one of the life-size cars used in the film Doppelganger Uh and the TV series UFO. As I'm sure you know, the cars were designed by special effects man Derek Meddings and Ford Motor Company stylist Len Bailey. The Byfleet-based racing manufacturer Alan Mann Racing was commissioned to build the two cars. They cost £10,000 pounds each which was a lot of money in 1968 and they were built out of hand beaten alloy and measure 17 feet long six feet wide 44 inches high they were based on the ford mark IV car chassis anyway uh, i've always been a great fan of jerry anderson right from the start of the supermarination days so it followed that when i saw an article in the daily express back in 1968 entitled presenting the 10,000 pound doppelganger a car you just can't buy <laughs> i was hooked Ah. Uh, he says I know there were definitely two cars built for the film yet in one scene there appears to be three I understand the third was probably a mock-up for filming purposes Um, however he says the Foster's car the lilac one ended up being bought by a film company called Oppidan and was refurbished at a reputed £8,000 to appear oh in an adult film entitled <clears throat> Fluff. <coughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, he says, or perhaps fortunately, the money for the film ran out and it was never made. However, the refurbishment was completed before the money ran out and it remained unused in the hands of said film company for a few years until December 1979 when... Dot, 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 I bought it. Yes, lovely. Yes, and that's from Mike Hammond, who also very kindly sent us some uh, lovely photographs. So well done, Mike, on that. That's great. Now... I asked over on our Facebook group 
uh, a little earlier, just before we came uh, and recorded this, for the Podstron's questions and comments regarding the plethora of Anderson Entertainment audio productions that are coming up with uh, Terror from the Stars and Five Star Five and so on. So Alex Pass says, um, is Five Star Five going to be available from Big Finish? And are there any plans for new Thunderbirds, Stingray or UFO, the list goes on, stories? Uh, yes, it will be available from Big Finish in due course. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In terms of new stuff, our license precludes new stuff currently. Um, ah, unfortunately. So we right. are working on that. But um, adaptations of existing published stuff, yes. So that's what you're right. going to see the most of. But I still think that's quite exciting, and it's got an added authenticity. So, yep, yeah, that's how that's Great. where we are. Dave Munns says, uh, "How many Thunderbirds adventures can we expect, and will all be released in the same CD and hardback format?" I expect approximately eight currently. And yes, they will all be presented in the same format and the same style packaging, and it'll be a lovely collector set, and it'll look great on a shelf. Oh, lovely. Yes, won't it? Uh, Miles Parrish says, uh, Loving the artwork designs for these releases, and I'm excited to receive the books in the mail. Are there plans to adapt the Kevin McGarry Lady Penelope books too? I just read Gallery of Thieves again recently, and I would love to hear this. Um, ooh, that sounds like it might be an exclusive if I say yes. Oh. So I'll say maybe. <gasps> right, okay. <laughs> All right, there you go, Miles. Uh, Andrew Hyde says, any more Space Precinct on the way? And also, is Jamie open to the idea of fan submissions for potential audio dramas? And on a similar vein, Tom Holden says, can I have a job writing the Joe 90 reboot? And Simpsons Clip says, <laughs> if Big Finish creates any Lavender Castle audio dramas... Could me and my friend Jack Williams write for them? So where do you stand on fan submissions, Jamie? Uh, it's actually a slightly tricky area, copyright-wise. I think we may have covered this before, because you might yeah. send something in, which is actually very similar to something we're already working on or have already considered or is already maybe even in production. And then you might think, oh, well, they've nicked my idea. Whereas, actually, there aren't that many ideas in the world. Uh, True. A lot of crossover and similarities. So generally, we say, please don't submit stuff. It's not because we don't value people's creativity or think you couldn't yeah. do it or anything like that. It's yeah. purely from a, a legal protective standpoint because we, you know, we spend a huge amount of money developing these things and paying all the actors and the writers and the engineer and the sound designers and all that sort of stuff. Um, mm. So to put any of those at risk is, is a bit of a commercial no-no for us. If, if you wanted to submit the best way to do it is via uh, an agent so you know if you yeah. have got some interest from an agent th- from your writing then an agent can approach us and they can make it do it sort of all safely and properly that's no. the best way to do it great uh, as to any more space precinct on the way i suppose that's possible isn't it well i think we should probably have a chat about that uh, yeah. after this recording don't you yeah yeah fair enough yeah. uh all for now uh but i should be reading out some more emails next week and a little later on some facebook comments and some uh, youtube mentions Ooh, and I'm looking forward to those because they're always a bit uh, fruity, aren't they? <laughs> no, 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 I pick the nice ones. Oh, right, okay. Always. Yeah. Well, I look forward to yeah. those in due course. Um, uh, bridging us across from emails to YouTube and other stuff, an interview yeah. with Michael Shanks, mm-hmm. we normally oh, have yeah. something at this point called the Jerry Anderson News. We do, yes. Are we uh, sort of shaking things up and doing things a bit differently this week, then? Uh, no, we're having the Jerry Anderson News. Oh, fair enough. It's the Jerry Anderson Newsy News News News. Oh, lovely. oh that's better. Lovely. Yeah. I wasn't expecting to have to harmonise this week, so sorry okay. if I got that wrong. But uh, yes, this week's Jerry Anderson News. Uh, well, there's lots of it, uh, so let's start with this. 
So let's start with some Thunderbird Terror from the Stars, eh? Oh, it's sounding lovely. Ooh. Now, due to a strange scheduling quirk, if you ordered your download copy at Big Finish, it is out now and you've probably got it. You may have already heard it. Well, certainly some people have heard it and I've got a little review coming up shortly. The CD and book will follow in two weeks. This has just happened because of a few scheduling quirks between Big Finish's schedule availability and where they had slots, manufacturing and various other things. For future releases, we hope, well, we're pretty sure we'll be able to get them really nicely synchronized so that you won't be waiting. Now, if you did pre-order a CD, then you will have had an email from us giving you a free access to the download copy. Yeah, nice. So you should be able to get that. If you haven't got that, just um, drop us an email, support at jerryanderson.co.uk and Louise will help you out. It's sounding rather lovely. So if you haven't heard it yet, here is another short sample to whet your appetite. Through his binoculars, the hood, now concealed behind a ridge near the crag, saw Scott reappear from the ruins of the fortress and make for the top of the stairway leading down to the desert plain. At last! What is that he carries? It glows like a colossal jewel. Tracy lied! He did not come to rescue anyone. He lied to deceive me as to his real mission. It is not the first time that International Rescue have used their resources to recover hidden treasure. You fool! You are not clever enough by half, my friend. Your treasure shall be mine. He snatched up the high-powered gun beside him and focused the telescopic sight on Scott. He squeezed the trigger, and the sharp crack cut through the still desert air. A second later, there was a vivid flash that obliterated Scott from the hood's vision and the crack of the exploding missile echoed after the first detonation. And then the hood's jaw sagged. Scott was walking on, starting down the stairway to the desert below. It cannot be! It exploded before it reached him! What is this? Some new invention of the accursed international rescue? An invisible protective armor? Bah! If I could trail him to their secret base. But I cannot fly as fast as Thunderbird 1. Ah, I have an idea. But I must hurry. Or it will be too late. The hood scrambled down the slope to the ridge where his armoured helicopter car was hidden. He pressed a button on the control panel, and a false bottom slid back to reveal a bullet-shaped capsule just large enough to contain his recumbent figure. As Thunderbird 1 rose slowly into the air and headed west with extended wings, the capsule hurtled over the ridge and rapidly overtook it. For an instant, the projectile hovered above the rocket plane, keeping pace with it. Then it descended and with a clunk of magnets, clamped itself to the silver hull like a limpet to a rock. A moment later, Thunderbird 1's wings were retracted, and the great craft accelerated to hypersonic speed. In the cockpit, an electronic warning flashed and bleeped, but Scott Tracy was oblivious to it. He sat staring sightlessly at his instrument bank 
mechanically repeating the same thing over and over. London. I must get to London. And on a control console at his side, the blue-white sphere glowed wickedly. I like that. Oh, the hood's a naughty boy, isn't he? Uh, now, obviously that'll give you a little flavour. You may have heard the other clips online. There's more on our YouTube channel. But the reviews are starting to come in, and I thought I would share this lovely quote with you from uh, Jack, our lovely friend at the Security Hazard blog, the Jerry Anderson blog. He says... Terror from the Stars is nothing short of a miracle. There are so many things that could have gone wrong, voices that just didn't sound right, music that strayed too far from Barry Gray's work, modern sound design which washed out the charm of the original series. The finished product, however, is a thoroughly researched and respectful production which culminates in an utterly thrilling adventure, transporting listeners back to the Thunderbirds we all know and love. Oh, isn't that nice? Oh, yes. And I agree. Thanks, Jack. I really appreciate your uh, thoughts on that because there are lots of things that could have gone wrong and everybody worked really hard to make sure it was as authentic as possible. So I think mission accomplished. Uh, More on future releases very shortly. Uh, In the meantime, something else some of you are waiting for, the Space 1999 cosplays. Goodness me. All this COVID stuff and international lockdowns and shipping issues, it's amazing the effect it has and... uh, Everybody on this side has coped remarkably well in, in terms of operations and logistics and getting stuff manufactured. Anyway, they are arriving at our warehouse, we are told, this week, and we'll get them turned around and out to you as soon as possible. And there may be some other sleeve colours coming quite soon too, if you don't fancy a Koenig or a Carter. Perhaps you uh, like a bit of red or purple in your life? We'll see. Great. Uh, uh, which is something you've probably been watching on loop, I imagine, mm-hmm. is uh, Chris Dale's lovely Demeticity Blues um, title sequence. Podstron, have you got any suggestions for other title sequence mashups we could do? Um, I haven't got any particular thoughts myself, but if you can think of a great combination, perhaps you think Thunderbirds meets the A-team. Um, there you go, there's a suggestion. Drop us a line, podcast at jerryanderson.co.uk. If you fancy some reading about Terrorhawks, then, uh, oh yes, it's the Randomizer General again. He's been at it. He's written uh, all about the case files of the Badwater County PD uh, in Terrorhawks, all the strange things that happened there to poor old Sheriff Bull. If you want to have a read of that, go to jerryanson.co.uk. And my final little hint in this uh, week's news is that this week, in the next two days after release, we are recording our next exciting story. So, stand by for casting story cover and pre-order announcements in the next couple of weeks it's all rather exciting but that is the end of this week's jerry anderson news that was the news that was the news all right i see so i invite podstrons to send in their their sung submissions and then you leap back in and do it let's call it my swan song and maybe next week we'll start with some uh some listeners attempts well well we'll see about that won't we yeah all right okay yeah good uh lots of news isn't there it's all going on it always is yeah it's true uh now talking of things going on over on our facebook group our podstrons have been very busy doug morris for example said i saw the 1969 film marooned have you heard of this jamie Um, it stars gregory peck david jansen gene hackman no it's on prime video but i don't think i've seen it well, he says, as most Potters will know, this film won the Oscar for Best Special Visual Effects in 1969 over Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, mm. or Doppelganger. Although Marooned has some impressive effects, it's nowhere near the great effects provided by Derek Meddings for JTTFSOTS, <laughs> IMHO, 
<laughs> Having said that, he says, Marooned isn't a bad film. Thank you for that, Doug. John McDonald says, I've just finished something else new to me from our fabulous Andiverse, namely Gemini Force One Black Horizon ah. on audio from Big Finish and uh, Anderson Entertainment. Being from the Super Mario Nation era, I'm looking forward to the future new imaginings of well-loved classics that are coming our way, but discovering stuff from After Space 1999 that I never knew existed thanks to our podcast is even more exciting. He says, Gemini Force 1 comes into this category and I really enjoyed it, though the source material feels that it's aimed at a slightly younger audience than myself at times. Jacob Dudman does a sterling job telling the origin story of this newer Anderson universe, which has slight nods to the Thunderbirds concept, and copes excellently having to do many teen and female voices during the course of the story, which couldn't always have been easy to get right. Uh, He says it's set in present times with some pop culture references and sci-fi leanings, and this story is based on believable science, giving this tale a modern edge as does the darker and tragic moments that occur in the life of our hero ben carrington overall i'd say this was pretty good and i'd recommend giving this a go if you haven't tried it yet looking forward to the next installment in the series ghost mine very good and that's from john mcdonald jamie are we done uh, with gemini force one uh, well, we'll be putting out White Storm, which is the third book in the series, later this year. Um, uh-huh. And we might even do a little collector CD set of all three, possibly. Oh, nice. Um, so, but who knows? Gemini Force One is certainly not over. There are, there are more stories to tell in the future. So, uh-huh. yes, who knows? It's just uh, we can't do everything at once, which is true. a bit annoying no. sometimes, actually. That's true, yeah. <laughs> Mark Perkins posted, At Christmas 1969, following on from the classic annuals featuring Thunderbirds and then Captain Scarlet, there came a peculiar hybrid, a joint Thunderbirds-Scarlet annual. Mm. Uh, I only recently got hold of a copy and I was fascinated to see some proposals for five new pod vehicles. As some fans regard the information in these books as canon, I thought it might be fun to share them. Uh, I'll post one a day and see what fellow podstrons think of them. Now, he's posted some pictures and they include the mini crane, forest crab, a bridge builder, hover transporter, and my favourite, the disco copter. Which has a top speed yep, of 600 miles an hour and a 30,000 mile range. But as Mark says, not so much a pod vehicle, more like a Thunderbird craft in its own right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very nice design. So I'd like to ask our podstrons, what's the best Jerry Anderson craft we never saw? Did you Ooh. ever design any yourself? Have you got any ideas? Did you use to doodle your own sort of Jerry Anderson-esque craft? Have you made a Thunderbird 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12? What's the best Jerry Anderson craft we never saw? Email us in uh, podcast at jerryanderson.co.uk. And I'll read them out next time. And finally, Ralph Titterton, who we know well and love, says he loves the brilliant new Space Precinct titles, recreating Hill Street Blues, as Sergeant Fredo would say, let's be careful out there. Or perhaps, let's do it to them before they do it to us. If you're old enough, you'll recognise the quotes. And that's from Ralph. Yeah, that was really sweet, wasn't it? The... Uh, Space Precinct titles given the Hill Street Blues makeover. Very nice. Lovely stuff from Chris Dale again. You see what a clever yeah. chap he is, all those things. And uh, yeah, yeah. I've, got, I've got some other ones that I'd like us to do. So uh, watch this space Great. for future ones. And entirely appropriate. I remember Jerry saying in various press junkets that uh, Space Precinct was Hill Street Blues in space. Yeah, so uh, literally. there you go. We did it. Spot yeah. on. <laughs> Very nice. You can find that at the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jerry Anson TV. Now, Richard James, is that enough from this little segment from you? Oh, I should think so. Mm, I thought so as well. Uh, now, mm. look, we made a discovery thanks to uh, producer Ben Page. Uh, and that yep. discovery was Michael Shanks. Oh, yes. And he's our interviewee today. Great. Ben sent me a link to his short film Rebooted, which has nearly four million views on the YouTubes. Rum. And it tells the story of an out-of-work stop-motion character. 
uh, <laughs> has a lot to say about the value and charm of practical effects in the digital age. Uh, in addition, he's got uh, two feature films in the TV series in development, and he did a TV series for one of the Australian channels called Wizards of Oz. Oh, which like some it. of you may have seen. Yeah. Uh, so Michael's a really creative guy, really, really nice. Had a really interesting set of thoughts on all things Thunderbirds and an unusual take on a potential um, reboot or remake, which I think we will hear next week. But for now, shall we hear part one of Michael Shanks? Oh, yes, please. Mm, okay, here is part one of Michael Shanks. Um, hello, my name is Michael Shanks. I'm a uh, filmmaker, primarily a writer and director based in Melbourne, Australia. Um, I make lots of uh, content that's uh, sort of like, I guess if I were to sum it up, like like kind of weird premises, sort of like unique premises with a strong uh, sort of uh, reliance on visual storytelling with the heavy kind of visual effects uh, sort of component. Okay, nice. Is that how you pitch your projects to potential, you know, backers and distributors saying, yeah, weird premises, uh, yeah. Is that something of that, uh, some shade of that, but yeah, weird premises often, I think makes people think of like wackiness. Um, but like, honestly, that's when I know that I'm, uh, excited enough about a project to, to pursue it. I think when you're a, uh, creatively minded person or a writer, you, you have lots of ideas, but for me, I think the skill is trying to know which ideas are worth pursuing because when I pursue an idea, I, obsess over it for years so i want to make sure that it's actually a worthwhile thing to obsess over like there are so many you know my medium is is, is film and, and there's so many films that i watch that whilst they have great they might have like kernels of great truths in them just from a zoomed out point of view i find the the setup so uh banal that i feel a bit like it, it's hard for me to imagine this was necessarily a person's passion project unless it maybe genuinely reflected their personal life story whilst I think with um particularly now when I'm as I'm trying to move into kind of longer form stuff my hope is to make stuff whereby in a sentence you can sum it up as something completely unique but within that experience of watching it you can uh, hopefully receive you know uh, more nuanced uh, and and broader truths uh, in the work despite like a premise that sounds kind of wacky. So what, but wacky with meaning and something people can take away and that means something to you. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. That's the sort of like, I, I like making, um, I think that the way that I know that idea, an idea is uh, worth pursuing for me is if I have an idea and I suddenly become totally freaked out that somebody's already made it. And I, you know, will spend weeks Googling every iteration of it just to see, you know, if so much as like a sketch was done with the same idea, I'll have to abandon it, which is probably like bad, but but that's just how I kind of feel. No, no, that's, a, that's probably a really good approach. So does that mean you've discarded some things which actually were really awesome and you wish hadn't already appeared in some form somewhere? Is there a, a junk pile? Well, the weirdest one for me, and I, I guess I, I don't mind talking about it because it came with like, these ideas. I feel like, oh, if somebody stole this because I'm so particular about it, but, you know, I, I, I just don't think somebody would. But I was convinced. I was telling a friend like, oh, I can't remember the name of this film, but there's a film that has this premise. And, man, it's the best premise. Uh, like, I was so jealous because I really wanted to make that premise. And then I, he was like, what's the film name? I was like, oh, I could remember. And I Googled it for, like, years, and I could just never find it. I've become convinced that maybe... I became convinced that, oh, I, I just came up with this idea, <laughs> but I still had this lingering sense of doubt. So actually, if anybody listening has seen or heard of this, then that would be good. But 
uh, I've actually now developed it into something more specific and it would go its own way anyhow. But the short idea was that it was a feature film that was losing its budget as it was going on. And that was an idea that I thought was really neat. I thought it was neat from like the idea of like within the universe, like you're just watching a movie that like starts really slick and really polished and looks like it costs a million bucks. But over the film, you know, the, the windows leading into space just become green screens and the CGI main character just becomes a guy in a suit covered in dots and slowly and slowly and slowly and doing kind of like a Don Hertzfeld thing with it, whereby, you know, if you watch Don Hertzfeld's uh, Rejected, the world of the animator falls apart, but we see it only from the characters within the animation. So the paper will start to crinkle and that will, you know, start to kind of act like wind blowing against the characters. And I think that's a really uh, kind of funny way to express like existentialism, like the idea that within a film, you know, the characters are in this very constructed, very fake world and yet they have to treat everything and react to it like it's real. So if they suddenly saw a green screen, is that the equivalent of, you know, Truman seeing the, the, the sunlight fall out of the sky? Or is that the equivalent of, uh, yeah, somebody like seeing that God is real or that God isn't real with irrefutable yeah. proof? Like what would that do to somebody? I think it's the just kind of a funny sort of meta idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So being suddenly exposed to what makes it, real or not as the case may be mm. i think that premise probably pretty well potentially describes your creative style and uh, the way you think about creativity so we're, we'll definitely come back to that later but there was a phrase you used in there about the constructed world and the characters within it that have to treat it as real and that sort of in a really ugly segue can lead me straight into uh, the worlds of jerry anderson michael how's that you see what i've done there uh, Beautifully yeah. done, so yeah. smooth. smooth. Thank you. Like a segway with big puffy tires. Thank you very much. I was that's what I was going for. So uh, I know that Ben, who reached out to you, uh, obviously checked to make sure that uh, Anderson stuff meant something to you, and he fed back that there was some memory of a Tracy Island toy, which is always a good start. And um, I think you may be our first Australian guest in over 140 podcasts. So wow, thank you for doing that. I'm, I'm honoured, although I must confess I am secretly a New Zealander, but I've just I've <gasps> lived here so long that I feel, you know, in any meaningful way, I am culturally Australian. But uh, fact, do you know what? I've just, I, you've made me realise David Tremont uh, at Weta, who one might think of as a New Zealander, is actually an Australian. So, okay, you were kind of oh, reverse things. Uh, yeah. So, okay. Gosh. So you're New Zealand, so I've just offended both the population of New Zealand and you by calling you an Australia an Australian. Is that? I, don't right? know. I mean, I have an Australian accent. Well, I mean, I say that my my partner's English, and so I I sort of just have this like just very very Anglo accent. But, um, you know, it's it's more Australian than it is anything else. But but I get asked by Australians, oh, you know, oh, what's your bloody accent, mate? It's a bit it's a bit cooked, you know, because um, <laughs> that's how most Australians talk. Yeah, that's. Uh, Great. Now, now I'm really convinced that of the Australian thing. But Australia is a a kind of um, a spiritual home of bands and stuff because in the 60s, Kerry Packer bought Thunderbirds in perpetuity. And oh. so Thunderbirds has had a kind of very long and consistent history uh, in Australia. Am I to assume that Thunderbirds is your first exposure to the world of Anderson or is it something else? I, I think it was was Thunderbirds. I think Thunderbirds was, was, was basically, you know, the the Anderson thing that was a big part of my life. This was back in New Zealand. It's funny because even when I was growing up, I was born in 1991. 
it, it was an older show, I think. Like mm. I, I spoke to my brother recently and brought it up and I had remembered us both loving it. And I remember my brother said like, nah, I, when he was a kid, cause he's older than me by he's seven to eight years older than me. To him, it was like, nah, this isn't Pepsi Max enough. This isn't, you know, <laughs> this isn't WWF. Uh, this is, this is old crap. And I was like, it's so cool. I wonder if it also maybe uh, hurt his impression of it because the main place that I remember watching it, I watched it at home, but I would watch it at my grandma's house. Mm. Like, you know, one of those, uh, it, it was kind of a, you know, I, I don't mean to say it was spooky, but it was, uh, you know, my grandma lived alone and we would go and visit her. And I was just like very young and it was a house that like smelled like old people's houses. Yeah. And I didn't really know what that was. And it was, it was always silent. There was never any music. There was one clock that was just incredibly loud and would just go, you know, it felt like the set of a Pinter play or something. <laughs> and uh, it was just kind of a, a bit alienating. Yeah. And I remember, you know, my mom would take us and, and she'd be catching up with grandma and helping her out. And I was kind of too young to do that stuff. So I'd like go, there was a little TV in, in the far bedroom and just sit there. And I just felt like that was what was on. It was always like mid afternoon, Saturday or a Sunday, and it would just be Thunderbirds. And I just, I just loved it. It was, I mean, it still is. It's, it's such a unique uh, form. You know, I'm not going to explain it back to you. That's, that's really funny if I was like, oh, the thing about Thunderbirds is, but, um, <laughs> you know, outside of something like just in like a, an obviously like very over parody, like, uh, you know, Team America, it's, it's so distinctly its own thing. Mm. And that's, that's, I don't know, like that's like a level of like iconography that so few things can hope to, to uh, achieve. And uh, yeah, but it, it's interesting though because that it doesn't work for some territories and some demographics and that kind of thing. You know, we're like in in the UK, we from the sixties or fifties onwards, really puppetry was everywhere, and it was a kind of natural, although very very smart and well kind of structured te technological push in that area. But in the US, for example puppets didn't never really became a thing they were always figures of comedy and I don't, I don't know where they kind of where that sat for Australia New Zealand whether there was a heritage of, of puppetry and that's why it made it more accessible for you I'm trying to think of you know other puppetry from New Zealand you know uh, I remember certainly seeing puppet shows as a kid I'm just thinking of Meet the Feebles which I definitely didn't see as a kid but that's mm. like a New Zealand thing with uh, with puppets that comes to mind that uh Peter Jackson like you know raunchy puppets movie that he made Ah, yes. <laughs> it's funny that it doesn't work in America because was that, was America where they did like HR Puff and stuff in Lidsville, uh, Ooh, which was not puppets, but they were sort of, I mean, speaking of my grandma's alienating house and watching something on the television, I saw the first episode of it, or I watched an episode of a show called Lidsville. Have you ever heard of that? No. It was something, you know, when you're a kid and you hear a radio jingle like once and your brain just goes, yep. That's in your head till you die. Yep. And you don't even really remember it. I have like the Lidsville theme song, like just drilled into my brain from um, one time watching the show at my grandma's house. And it was like only a couple of years ago that I kind of thought I should look this up. And I watched it and it was as much of a nightmarish fever dream as I remember. It was a, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, this won't take too long, but it was a Butch Patrick, right? Who was the kid who played the wolf boy on the Munsters, I think. Yeah. Okay. It was him in like a kind of swinging 60s, swinging 70s like show. He was like a teen, but he went to a magic show 
and was so stunned by it that he snuck back in to see how the tricks were done, to see what was in the magic hat. And actually the, the hat grew and he fell into the hat and inside the hat, he ended up in another realm called Lidsville, where everyone was an anthropomorphic hat. So you've got one human, like young teenage boy, like oh. well, maybe like 13, 14. Right. And he's running around with a bunch of like giant, uh, you know, like uh, wearable puppets of like hats. And they were all like racial stereotypes. So there'd be like a rice paddy hat, you know, with a Fu Manchu mustache. And there'd be like a sombrero and they'd all do accents that if we impersonated now would be rightfully locked up let's not do those <laughs> then <laughs> yeah. um it, it was, it's really funny i recommend watching the youtubing the opening sequence of lidsville so if that's the uh, american equivalent of like their sort of like you know puppety thing mm. oh it's awful <laughs> Yeah, you can see maybe why it doesn't uh, connect culturally. I mean, they're much more into kind of worn puppets, glove glove puppets, Muppet style puppets mm, than elsewhere. True. But even between you and your older brother, then he he had a view of ah, this is kind of old. This is old hat. Uh, this this it's it's too <laughs> retro. But for you, for some reason, it connected. So what you know? But you got any idea why that might be? I mean, besides you know different personalities, what what grabbed you at the time? It's fun. I mean, I, I was always kind of into sort of more more retro things. I just, I think I really liked, which kind of explains to, to where I've, I've gone with my career. I, I, I think I liked that I could tell that there were puppets in a way. I, could, I kind of liked that I could solve the puzzle of how it was pulled off, you know, in a very abstract sense. But, you know, the work that I do is very uh, VFX uh, heavy. And I uh, do most of those VFX myself. And... You know, when I was a kid and DVDs started coming out, I would buy DVDs to watch the special features. I would just watch those behind the scenes because I just loved seeing the deconstructions. And, you know, we mentioned magic with Lidsville, but there was like seeing magic tricks getting explained to you, but the explanation of the trick made it more magical. Yeah. Uh, and, and that was wonderful. So, you know, watching something old, like watching, um, you know, old Harryhausen, for example, like, I, I knew it. I didn't think it looked real, but I just thought it looked awesome. I thought it was cool. You know, I thought it was neat, I guess. Um, and I think, yeah, Simon, my brother, just uh, maybe it was just too old and cynical by the time I was like conscious of that stuff. Um, <laughs> although he did watch um, what well, he used to watch, which was puppet adjacent, which was stop motion, mm. uh, was Celebrity Deathmatch. Do you remember that? I, God, I haven't thought about that for years. Yeah, I remember that. Wow, that was kind of that, like a proper kind of claymation stuff and quite gory. Is that I remember? I've, I mean, I haven't yeah, seen that, it that like was very the Pepsi Max generation. It was yeah. Gosh, who were the celebrities that would be? It would be like you know tonight on Celebrity Deathmatch. It's Hanson beat up like uh, Marilyn Manson. I, I I just put that out of my hat. Um, That's nice. But I assume that actually might have been an episode. I have a weird feeling that I actually remember that specific one. So maybe that was that was one of the best ones. Um, I mean, it's it's just the most '90s thing to me. Is like, <laughs> oh, Hanson sing pop songs and have long hair. They are losers. Marilyn Manson's like cool and radical. <laughs> what if they fought? Like back when you know schoolyard humor was like, hey, you know Barney the dinosaur. What if we like? shot him wouldn't that be crazy yeah which i'm sure they ended up doing in family guy or similar so that oh, i mean yeah. you're you're you, it seems very much like your your brother is very much in that team america and uh celebrity deathmatch uh area uh kind of the use of those characters for for parody and comedy whereas you were more interested in the the technical side 
Mm, yeah, and I definitely love the, the parody and comedy stuff too. I just, yeah, I, I, I to this day, I just love deconstructing things. Like th this is probably, I don't know if this is considered gauche, but there are certain films that come out that I will never see just because I won't get around to them. I don't have a problem with them. But if I know they're like effectsy movies, I'll, I'll still seek out like, I'll not watch the effect sequences so I can read interviews with the people that made them and watch the breakdowns and that sort of thing. Cause I just, I just love it. Like to this day, even with like, there's lots of like, there's a style of CGI that I love that's going for realism, but it just looks fake. But I kind of love that it looks fake. It's, mm -hmm. um, I'm, tr I'm trying to think what I mean by that. I think like there's lots of like movies that come out of like China that have, um, and India that have huge visual effects sequences. And they're just not quite up to the, the level of say like an ILM or a Weta, yeah. but they look better than I could do. And they look awesome. Like I just kind of love seeing, I, I just love seeing, uh, you know, where technology goes and, and, you know, the limits of that I, I find, uh, I find enjoyable anyway. There's something about accepting the limitations and being willing to show how, show almost how, show, show how something is done or accept what, how it's done. And I mean, that, that fits perfectly with the Supermarination era, 100%. There was, you know, they were trying to be the best possible puppets and filmic setups they could possibly be, but you still know. There's no mm. pretending. We're not trying to pretend these are human characters. And, you know, I, I don't know if you saw any of the later Anderson stuff like Captain Scarlet and Joe 90, and they went for kind of very human proportions rather than acknowledging that they're, they're right. puppets. And I think they ended up being less successful as a re result because they're kind of, leaving the realm uncanny of Valley. not even uncanny value really because they were so um kind of so so static and so so tiny the, the scale they still stuck at third scale but the the heads were shrunken right down and i, I don't know it kind of lost something there's, there's always there's always two camps in that where they prefer the large heads or the smaller heads but it does lead me into uh, a thing which we constantly hear and i am kind of in the middle of this and i feel like you might be too there's a there's always that argument of oh you know cgi it's easy vfx stuff is you know there's no real craftsmanship there which is not true there's of course there's digital craftsmanship and so there is there's a school of thought there that says you know practical stuff is real always will be real behaves according to the laws of physics and that's something that which you you cannot recreate perfectly enough. So you either try and do it really, really well or go over the top and it looks kind of fakey or you accept it and have it slightly stylized. Where do you sit on the kind of the best tools for the job side of things? Do you think there's there's such strength in practical effects that we should never leave them behind and use that as much as possible? Or are you more towards the kind of best most modern tool available let, let's use it or kind of where i am which is somewhere in between yeah i, I think I'm, I'm i'm definitely sort of uh on, on the in between because i i love both uh both things um and i think that the thing i, I feel really sorry for proper vfx artists because you know i'm a vfx artist but i'm really just a vfx artist like for myself and and you know kind of smaller productions but the way that i understand it is that you know and then they're obviously as you say like there's so much craftsmanship in CG, like those probably VFX artists are incredible craftsmen, or craftsmen and women. Uh, I uh, just, I think the reason whereby VFX can be bad, and uh, you know, lots of people talk about this, it's usually a limitation of time and budget. And as I understand it, and I'm not an expert on this stuff, the way that like VFX vendors quote for jobs, it's a flat fee. 
So there will be a, you know, a deadline where everything has to be finished. And the VFX artist will finish the shot, but then the director will have, will want a change and another change and another change. And suddenly, oh, you're getting run into this deadline. You People get pushed over time without getting paid for it because there's a flat fee. They can't ask for more money. There's no, I think, you know, with, with practical, usually if it's like part of main production, like everybody's on the clock, like you, you've got to shoot that stuff and you've got to kind of get it right. And then you move on. And I think, the problem is more, you know, less so with the artists and I think just with like the delegation of tasks and it's a lot easier for people to think, well, you will do it in post because then we're not eating up into the really expensive main production time. And I think, you know, CGI, I mean, I, 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 in my productions, I'd love to do everything as practical as possible because for, in some ways, well, it's, it's a little more mysterious to me because I've done so much kind of computer stuff that I'm, I get thrilled when I get to work with people that can do stuff that I can't even comprehend. So you, I, there's a, there are natural constraints for, well, for both types for the VFX side, because of, like you said, they're kind of, it, this is the fee and you will keep fixing it until we're happy or until we're out of time. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. so there's a, there's a one shot thing. I mean, we, we, we did, um, sort of pilot mini so for a puppet show a kind of modern interpretation called firestorm and i was really fascinated by the comments so we went as practical as possible we used the fx to uh you know layer stuff up and you know a lot of the puppetry was shot against blue or green and we were you know yeah. comping stuff blue, in. Cables, that kind of thing yeah because we were, were going for uh, rod driven puppets for these oh yeah right um but the puppets were you know facial animatronics quite quite high end and um when we put it out there are a load of comments of, oh, CGI characters will never work. So we've taken practical to a level where actually for kind of Joe Public, they, to them, it, they, it, it had crossed into the realm of being CGI. And so I, I wonder about how much an audience really cares, really. They think oh, they definitely. Care. And I, and, but if, that, if they can't even identify what is, what is real and what isn't, then actually perhaps we're putting too much weight into the argument and, and listening to the kind of the, the loud minority. And it, you know, there's just a lot more to it than just how it's done. Well, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think that, you know, audiences are willing to take abstractions much more so than a lot of, you know, filmy people will admit. I, I know that like we think of audiences being, you know, much savvier these days, but like think about, like the effects in the original Star Wars or uh, you know, the original Alien, there's there's bits and bobs in that that looks really bad. But, you know, Ghostbusters, but nobody cared because we, you know, cared about the world. And there's something about practical things where, like particularly with practical characters, where they don't look, quote, unquote, real, but they're very charming. And I don't just mean from like a you know, like kind of film nerd people like us who like love, you know, to go, oh, puppets, all this, da, 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 da. But I think just when generally, even if you know it's not an actual thing, it's in the scene and it's being interacted with people. And, you know, we can get to this if, if we want to talk about um, a short film I recently made, but I've been thinking a lot about why people find stop motion characters quite charming. Like even people that don't really know anything about film, when they see stop motion characters, they kind of fawn for them. And my kind of, what I was sort of, my, my kind of thought is we all played with dolls as kids. We all played with some degree of a doll or an action figure or a teddy bear or whatever. And when you see kind of a small thing that's actually real and you know what's being moved around, it kind of resonates like your childhood pineal gland back to life. And you feel this like 
you know it's not real, but you kind of want it to be because when you were a kid, you were playing with something janky and broken and you knew that wasn't a real living person, but your imagination would make it real, would connect that dot. And I sort of wonder if uh, even as, a, you know, jaded, cynical, calcified adults, if we don't, you know, want to take that leap again. So toys come to life as an uh, kind of an access point for nostalgic play imagination. Is that your kind of your analysis of it? Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like I'm a, a PG version of something Freudian. I'm, I'm not sure what. But... <laughs> no, I I totally get that, and that but that is that's the thing, isn't it? Like a lot of the the adult fans of of Thunderbirds now who grew up on it in the the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s because it's been reshown so many times. They're completely in love with, I think, the access that it gives them to nostalgia. And it's just it's not just the watching the experience of watching something, but you're right, it's the experience of playing and doing and acting. So that may be the the access point for how it runs deeper. So we'll we'll get to uh it's rebooted, isn't it? The one you're talking about, your, yes, your film. So we'll 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 get to that because that is a really interesting combination of techniques. And yeah, I know people can go and watch that. Um, sorry, well, I just had another thought about the, the Prack versus CGI thing. Yeah. Um, just, which is that um, I'm in the process of, you know, trying to actually uh, get a feature uh, shooting soon. But, you know, it'd be funny to listen back to, this, back to this in two years when that never happened. And I'm, you know, living as a pauper. But um, it, it is a, you know, most of the work that I've done is, is comedy. But this is actually like, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very serious, you know, evo- dread-filled horror film is the idea. And um, if you were to go into a, a smaller subcategory of genre, it would be body horror. Um, it's kind of a relationship drama that's also a body horror. And, uh, you know, my thought process was when I'm writing these kind of intense body horror sequences, I'm like, oh, you know, uh, it's got to be practical. It's got to be practical because we all know practical is what you want for like body horror. And I'm thinking back to, you know, the masters of the genre, Cronenberg and, and, and that era of work. But then, you know, this is taking nothing away from those people. I think the thing is like my favorite film. That's um, obviously like a John Carpenter film. The puppets and practical effects in that are amazing. And they did that, you know, the second the thing remake in, in the in the noughties where they did it with CGI and the CGI mm. looks sort of rubbish. But the CGI looks really bad. But if you go back to the original thing, it looks amazing and I love it. But it, do- it doesn't like look quote unquote real. No. Like it, it looks like an, an incredible abstraction of reality, which in a way kind of makes it grosser. And the other, and, and that was Carpenter, but the Cronenberg stuff is again, pretty similar. Like my, my pitch when I was pitching this film to, to, to get some funding was that, you know, this is body horror, but this is body horror from a very muted, dread-filled modern horror perspective. It's, I, I was saying to the, to, the, uh, to the funding bodies, it's not a bunch of puppets covered in lube. Um, but in the back of my mind, <laughs> in the back of my mind, I was going, but you know what, it, it probably is puppets covered in lube because that's how you do body horror. Yeah. And meeting with kind of puppet people and uh, you know, practical people about the VFX sequences, because I'm not going for something as out there as something like uh, you know, a Stuart Gordon film, like uh, Brian, uh, sorry, like uh, From Beyond, that actually CGI, the more it's with Pratt people, Pratt people are saying probably CGI will, will be the better solution just because it's, you know, it's, it's more subtle. And, and, but it's so easy to think of like that, you know, second thing remake in the noughties and just go like, oh, CGI body horror, that, that can't work too well. But I, I think that doesn't work for, for a multitude of reasons, not just because it, it is CGI. And um, I feel really overdue in watching this because it's actually really similar to this project. But I watched um, 
1981's Possession last night. I don't know if you've seen that. I have not seen 1981's Possession. Oh, it's wonderful. It's got a, um, you know, when you watch a movie from like 40 years ago and it's like just exactly your thing and you're like, how did I never see this before? It's got like a really young Sam Neill in it in full like creep mode. Everybody's, you know, super over the top uh, theatrical performances, but there's a, there's a, a reveal in it, if you know, mild spoilers for Possession, where um, Sam Neill believes his wife is having an affair with, well, explicitly knows she's having an affair with him, and he tracks down with whom she's having the affair, and it's this, like, tentacle monster, and it's this amazing practical squid puppet, and you see quite a graphic sex scene between her and the squid puppet while Sam Neill's kind of watching. Um, wow. And it, it is amazing, but it doesn't look real. Like, it looks like a woman having sex with a puppet, like the best puppet. But, like, <laughs> yeah, but then, you, you know, I suppose you argue, argue, like, with living creatures with CGI, like, we still know it's not a real thing. Of so perhaps the moot point anyway. It's just, like, I suppose, a question of tone that maybe we accept both of them as fake, but some part of our dumb modern brains, I think, thinks of CGI as being classier. For, for, yeah. To Joe Public, as you said, yeah. whilst puppets are seen as uh, throwback. So if, if you identify something as a puppet, I think that's, for, for Joe Public, a bigger failure than being not entirely convinced by, by a CGI thing because you think of CGI as being the, the correct and expensive way to go. That is a really interesting analysis. And I think you could be right. Of course, we're, we're influenced by, you know, kind of the the zeitgeist of what the latest cool thing is. And so soon it'll be, uh, what you're shooting on real sets. Uh, if you're not shooting, uh, you know, virtual production in Unreal, then it, it's it's crap. Why are you building things? Uh, well, what is the cool thing? I suppose it's like AI-driven um, CGI is going to be a big thing. Yeah. Yeah, or AI-driven think- uh, writing, potentially, uh, Michael. Sure. Then no more retreats for you at your top secret location. <laughs> I know. I'll, I'll take retreats to write code to, to yeah. write the script. We may all end up doing that. I think I saw some AI-driven CGI in a movie, which I also watched on this writing retreat, um, which was um, a movie called uh, Synchronic, uh, which is another kind of indie horror film. But it's somebody, somebody, It's about a guy taking finds this, these drugs. And if you take the drug, it uh, the trip, you know, it's a seven-minute trip. Mm. It's like a DMT trip, but it actually transports you back in time to a random point. And the way they do those time travel effects is like, the way I think, and I just only just watched it, you know, have you seen those like neural processing, like deep dream AI things where it's like, mm-hmm. it'll be, uh, you know, like a field and then it will like kind of blubble and warble into a cityscape. But do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's these like transitions whereby it's almost like an AI morph. But the weird thing is that it at no point is, a halfway image it kind of always looks like something that your brain wants to try and solve <laughs> even though it is out of nothing i haven't done hallucinogenic drugs much but i've heard that um that's it looks kind of exactly like that whereby your your brain is, is seeing often lots of like noise and fuzz but has to graft it into something it can solve so it kind of makes everything go okay Wow! Yeah, I'll put Synchronic. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put Synchronic on the on the watching list. So uh, thanks for that. <laughs> I'm taking some DMT. Let's go. Oh no, well, you know, it's 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 early in the day for me. Uh, That's Martin, true. So, That's true. Yeah. 
more Michael Shanks next week in part two. But thank you, Michael, for that. And um, obviously, quite a massive time difference. Uh, yes. So it took quite some scheduling to make manage? that work. I think <laughs> I he, he ends up doing a late morning, uh, sorry, a late night, and I did an early morning. Um, right. uh, so Michael was on a writing retreat and drinking beer, as you may have mentioned there. Uh, yes. So it was, uh, we were very professional about the whole thing. But uh, Oh, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it was a really, really fun chat. If you want to find out more about Michael in the meantime, you can go to michaelshanks.com.au or follow him on Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, uh, where his username is Tim Tim Fed. T-I-M-T-I-M-F-E-D. And I think he explains that next week. So you'll have to wait and see. But yes, do let him know what you think via any of those platforms. Now, Jamie, what can be found on the Jerry Anderson YouTube channel? Oh, not much, really. Uh, you know, no? just, uh, yeah. I mean, we've got some stuff on there. I think it's had about oh, 9 yeah. million views in total on the really? YouTube channel. Yes, and there's all Ooh. sorts of stuff from free episodes to yeah. primers to reviews, unboxings, um, wow. a documentary series um, about uh, Beyond Anderson, about all the stuff mm-hmm. that other actors have done beyond their Anderson careers and mm. loads more stuff besides. It's full of things, isn't it? It is indeed. And of course, our podcasts are posted there every week. Oh, gosh, yes. Beneath, yeah. Beneath Pod 153, Keith Gooch posted another great episode of the Jerry Anderson podcast this week. All the cheeky banter between Richard and Jamie, as usual. <laughs> a good first part. You see, I love it that people think it's banter. I never think yeah. of it like that. We're just having a laugh, aren't we? Well, is that not banter? Well, isn't it? I, mean, I don't know. Uh, a good first part of the interview with Toby Haydock. He says, I loved Chris Dale's randomizer review of Fireball XL5, uh, which will now forever be known as the one with space leprechauns in it. Thanks to Richard <laughs> for reading out one of my previous comments. My comments about Space Precinct ending another career wasn't directed at Richard. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> he says, I was referring to the likes of Nancy Paul, Nick Klein and Megan Olive, whose careers all ended with Space Precinct. Keep up the good work, guys. Yeah, well, I think that was entirely coincidental. I don't think Space Precincts to blame, is it? I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe maybe it was just a miserable experience. But above, or maybe it was so amazing they thought I'll never top this. No, uh, Ian D posted, great to hear Toby Haydock's memories of all things Doctor Who and Jerry Anderson, mm. although I'm quite surprised that he doesn't like Star Trek that much. Yes, I oh, know, funny. And also beneath the uh, fab facts regarding Ed Straker's second-in-command casting choices, Matt Ricardo uh, said, I recently stumbled across a movie called Journey to the Far Side of the Sun from 1969. I was amazed at how much UFO stuff was in it from cast, cars and locations. Mm. Uh, indeed, Trevor Randall says, I'd like to know more about the UFO set designer so many cool things the furniture the artwork and the colors now who would that be jamie hmm. uh i can't think yes. now no interesting uh, michael wiles says uh, we all know that poor alec was dumped such a shame he was an excellent hard man to straker's cool calculating approach wanda ventham was excellent too and I wish to take nothing away from her. I think my favourite episode, including Wanda, was or is Time Lash. I loved UFO then, still love it today. Rodney Kelly says, I found the constant changing of characters rather disruptive. If the actor is going to be leaving, why not have the fact that they would be transferred or something in their story arc? Uh, classic Disney Room said, I've never watched UFO, to which GLM replied, rectify that ASAP. <laughs> quite right too. Fair, fair comment now just on that uh, oh why didn't they have things about them leaving yeah uh, it's because things were, were often shown out of sync out of order yeah they couldn't That's guarantee right. the order in which the episodes were played so they could never have serial stuff like you get today where things definitely play out in a particular order so yeah they could exactly. never really deal with that sort of stuff 
Yeah, that's right. Tricky. Uh, so do uh, do uh, uh, visit the uh, Jerry Anderson YouTube channel. All sorts of stuff there, from uh, primers to uh, fab facts to Chris Dale's amazing uh, interview uh, uh, articles and. Uh, Oh, you know, stuff. It's just stuff. There is endless so amounts set of stuff. An afternoon. Yeah, it's all there. Uh, and comment as well, and I'll read them out next time. Perfect. I look forward to yeah. more of those comments in due course. Uh, particularly the ones from people saying, I've never seen this. Uh, yes. Now, Richard James. Mm-hmm. Chris Dale seems to have finished his writing. He's rolled up his scroll. He's taken off his wig. <laughs> he has, hasn't he? But he's still wearing that sort of ridiculous outfit and he's got the ruff around his neck and stuff. No, so. I think it looks good. Well, I didn't say it would look bad. You can be ridiculous and good, I suppose. Anyway, mm. look, Chris is here because uh, not only is he an expert contributor to the worlds of Anderson in general, but he also created and runs and manages the Randomizer, where he presses a button on his special machine, it picks a random Jerry Anderson episode and he watches it, the full length of it, and gives you his thoughts and comments and makes some funny gags and all that sort of stuff. So... Should we hand over to Chris so he can press his big red button? Oh, yeah. Over to you, Chris. Hello, everyone. This is Marina. Chris has asked me to introduce this week's episode of The Randomizer to you, using that text-to-speech thing he got me for Christmas a few years ago. You see, he left recording this week's introduction until the last moment, as he often does, then after he did it realized he had made a mistake and introduced the wrong episode by accident. Yes, that is a thing that can happen. It's too late to fix it now, and he is too embarrassed to admit it, so he asked me to come out here and introduce this week's episode to you. He is too busy crying to do it himself. I don't mind. It gives me a chance to say hi, and also to point out what a fool he is, which cannot be overemphasized. It's bad enough you have to listen to it, but I have to work with him. But if I don't, who will? So with apologies for there not being a proper introduction, although I'm sure I've done a much better job than he could, I am delighted to reveal that this week's episode is Gunfight at Oakis Corral. Here's Terrorhawks. Stop crying Chris. I've taken care of it. So, welcome back to Terrorhawks on the Randomizer. It, uh... It hasn't been too long since we were last here. Actually, for me, it feels like uh, quite a while since I've done this, actually. I have uh, I have taken a break from recording the randomizer for, um, I suppose, the best part of a month, really. But uh, you guys wouldn't know that because uh, you get a new episode every week. And here is... Oh, I love this. Zero out in the field looking for some... Uh, looking for some cubes. 10-10-0. And he has... Stop roll on! That was close. Zero, come in. I found him, sir. One of the swine just destroyed my helmet. <laughs> Presumably he has made himself a little hat for the occasion. A very, uh, very important looking hat. That's, that's trashed now. Oh, there they are. That's four. Sergeant Major, are you all right? Yes, ma'am. I'm drawing their fire in order to ascertain the number of the enemy. And a nice uh, example of Zero's bravery, which is going to be a, a theme through this this episode. Also, his uh, his um, decision oddly to uh, I'm alone. They've shown him to take on all these cubes as the only uh, the only Zeroid in the battlefield. Let's give it to him, sir, in capital letters. Zero. Of course, he's not the only one out there. Send in the battle tank. Because we have the battle tank. Battle tank. 
Roll out. Yes, I love this stuff. And I, I just love watching the battle tank rolling over the, the terrain. And it, it's it's always normally a pretty barren terrain. There's Sergeant Major Zero. plenty of uh, Alter course to one four two. Dead or very dry trees they can um, flatten along the way. That's it, lads. Hold that heading. It's a it's a very nice looking vehicle actually, the battle tank. Considering there's not a lot to it, it's it's very simple, and yet it, it works extremely well. Sergeant Major, get out of there. Too late, Mom. Digging in. We ne nearly got flattened by the uh, battle tank there. Oh dear. Sergeant Major. Sergeant Major, report. Still in one piece, Mom. And I think that's a, that's a rather nice uh, integration of the effect shots there and the well, I guess the shots of Zero could be considered live action because he is a machine. You kind of forget at times like that that um, he is actually being shot on the puppet stage, not on the uh, the model stage. But now the battle tank is uh, making very short work of these cubes. Lots of explosions going on all around it, but it just keeps on rolling. Give it to them, lads. That's it, yeah, that's the spirit. Oh, lovely big explosions. That's two more cubes gone. They can dish it out, but they can't take it so. Enemy destroyed. Well done, Sergeant Major. Oh, thank you, Mom. All right, let's clean up the area and get back to Hawknest. One thing I do find odd about this uh, episode, this, this particular encounter, in fact... Ten tens off. How did these cubes get to Earth? How did these cubes get to be in uh, in Badwater County? Well, there's no time for that because uh, we're heading on over to uh, this uh, shack in the middle of nowhere, home of one Sam Oki. And from there, we are heading Sheriff Bull. to Sheriff Bull's office. This is his uh, first appearance on the randomizer of Sheriff Bull. You have a storm over your side? You mean rain? Not since last winter. I could have sweared I heard thunder. No way, Sam. And Sheriff Bull, uh, I may have. Um, Maybe I'll go. I, I may have given this fact away in, uh, I think, one of my Terrorhawks episodes. He's one of my favourite characters on this show. No, if you find a snowball. Because he's just. I don't know the the idea of a sort of very inept police officer. That you, Kilroy. It's quite an unusual angle for an Anderson. Must have been patrol woman Holland. Show to take. Everyone's normally very competent, very good at their jobs. And here we have a, an entire police department staffed by the most useless people imaginable. It's quite uh, it's quite Simpsons-esque in that sense, the Badwater County Police Department. My helmet blown to pieces. Of which more later. Had come to give the fateful order. But I thought Dr. Neinstein was in command. Well... He was, in a manner of speaking. Zero's recounting his uh, his exploits to Zeroid 2-1, the stuttering Zeroid. Well, I thought you said uh, you were in the ground, Sergeant Major. Because this was just before that point where... Uh, where are you, Zero? ...where they'd thrown uh, Dee's wheat into the mix. Sounds rather angry. Like, uh, literally only an episode or two before. I'd better go. Zero! So 2-1 and 5-5 five five were... Uh, he does sound a little irate. ...were sort of uh, tryouts for a, a proper sidekick for Zero. Never quite made it. The only fire I see, sir, is the fire in your eyes. We have a problem. You reported six cubes out in that desert. Yes, sir. Definitely six. Hawkeye's been working on the pieces you collected. We can account for five. One cube is missing. We're going back. I want that cube located. Hawkeye gets all the best jobs. I don't think he's even in this episode, actually. 
Yeah, we, we often hear in before he disappears for the second series entirely we often heard um off-screen adventures of hawkeye where he's either doing really dull stuff like putting pieces of debris back together or he's getting reprimanded for is it you you disciplined hawkeye for failing to log a service report i want to say that was in close call but uh poor old hawkeye doesn't have a very good time of it uh, by and large i found it lying near this rock well, I tell you, it's the darndest thing I've ever seen. Yep, Sam's got uh, tomorrow, Sam, and take a look. an interesting find. He's reporting to the sheriff. What could it be? I guess I'll sleep on it. Oh, it's um, most of a cube. Looking very beat up, but... Uh, no less scary. Oh, and there it lights up. Again, there's something quite um, quite effective with the... I think the earlier episodes of Terrorhawks were quite good at making the cubes seem uh, seem rather sinister, especially in that, that scene there where there's almost no light, just the, uh, the cube pulsating in the corner. For a moment, I thought one of the cubes... No, it's nothing. And an interesting... Um, hint there that Zelda has some kind of telepathic contact with the cubes. Jelly, I think. Young Star's got more important things on his mind, of course. Granite crunchies with a sugaring of quick lime. Zelda! Stop him! I'm thinking! Be quiet! Yeah. And this is Young Star in his uh, plan has failed. His transitionary phase from um, plans have failed. mastermind with plans of his own to um, to, to a glutton with no mind at all. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to you. Oh, they've brought that battle tank back to the desert, and um, this is an episode that establishes. The, uh, the the town, I suppose you'd call it, of uh, of Badwater, vector search or the county of Badwater, rather. I'm never sure if it, what what the town itself is called. And it made sense, I suppose, for the show to include some kind of area because it was obvious that they didn't have the budget to show. I think I've discussed this before. Full cities, and um, especially interesting landscapes, because that would have cost money. So it was a lot of there were a lot of deserts. So if you're always going to go back to the desert, why not make it the same desert? Why not make it the same area and sort of build that up a bit? Which um, they 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 establish it all here, and then they don't really go back to it till the second series. Listen to me, Earthling. You will hear only my voice, and you will obey. I will obey. Oh, Zelda has got control of a... Uh, in every detail. Well, um, a, 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 a sort of rather old hick, um, <laughs> to all intents and purposes. Probably not a whole lot she can do with, uh, with Sam Oki. But perhaps it's not uh, the use she can make of him, it's the use she can make of him in order to trap somebody else. There's not much more we can do, Tiger. Yeah. Except, expect the unexpected. Yeah, that's not very constructive, though, is it? Dr. Einstein. What is it, hero? 
We monitored a weak radio signal. Our computers have cleaned it up. I'd like you to hear it. We're listening. Listen to me, Earthling. You will hear only my voice, and you will obey. That's as clear as we can get it, Doctor. Can you give us a fix on the location? We can't pinpoint it, but it's certainly within 20 miles of your present location. Thanks, Hero. We need to widen this search area. And as Terrorhawks is a secret organization, we need to move around less conspicuously. So? Incognito, Sergeant Major. Mom? There he is. How long do you think it'll take us to get there, Tiger? Well, let's see. Depends where we're going. I think we're in incognito. I think we're in Hudson. Hudson. <laughs> Very droll, Sergeant Major. I, again, I like moments like that where it, it sounds like Zero is genuinely didn't get the joke until that wonderful little Windsor Davies chuckle at the end. Meanwhile, Sam's been very busy. Followed my instructions, and you have done well. So well, I have decided not to kill you. Yet. Oh, she's so generous. Have you some devious plan, my most devious mother? I might have. Yes, he's been, uh... Whatever he's been doing, it's involved some wood and some red paint, which will be revealed later. Meanwhile, as Hudson speeds through the county, there's Kilroy. There's Kilroy. I got a live one, Sheriff. Gray Rolls Royce must be doing a hundred. A hundred. Uh, oddly enough, introduced in this episode, but but not seen. Uh, we only hear him radioing in messages to Sheriff Bull. Strange looking dude with a shiny bald head <laughs> mistaking zero for the driver of hudson of course speeds in my county don't lose him boy shall i endeavor to lose this particular arm of the law well why don't you do that hudson yes sir might i be so bold as to suggest that i alter my appearance by way of a disguise very good i like that good thinking asia zero shut up Yes, sir. Go ahead. <laughs> oh my goodness! I love, I love Windsor. I love the Sergeant Major. The fire in my eyes. And I love his relationship with Tiger. Right, sir. Not, not always. At times, it was just slightly too mean. I've lost sight of him, sir. Oh dear. They must have been touching 130. Suffering rattlesnakes, Hollins. Where are you at? This here is Patrolwoman Billy Jean Hollins. I yeah, um, Patrolwoman Billie Jean Hollands. Here she is. Another character who is introduced in this episode does not appear in person. We only hear her over the radio. Kilroy is in. But we never see her again after this episode. Oddly, we did just see um, Colonel Johnson's helijet was parked outside a building there for some reason. Listen. Sheriff Bull? Rose's Royce just went by like a rat up a drainpipe. Colour red. What color you say? I said red. I'm going after it. Oh, I love this stuff. It's so silly. In 20 years, I've never seen one. Now we got two Royce's Rolls in Badwater County. And of course, I can't let all this, um, all these scenes around the sheriff's office go, uh, get in here, go by without mentioning something very important. My name's Einstein. This is Mary Falconer. You with the military? 
special services. How can I help you folks? Because in the uh, Terrorhawks auction last November, um, there were several items from Sheriff Bull's office up for grabs, and among those were the red telephone on his de desk that we saw him talking to Sam Oki on earlier, on the and the two diplomas from his office wall. Well, and um, something very interesting happened to uh, both those sets of items. He'd found some strength I bought them. Was out in the desert. That's right, because I I love this character so much. Thing you're looking for. What's his name? And I couldn't I couldn't begin to tell you why, other than I just... Oh. I think they did some very funny things with him um, when they brought him back in the second series. So, here we are. I actually have it right by my microphone here. Here is Sheriff Bull's telephone. Woman, Billie Jean Holland. It's, um, uh, it's in the plastic bag because, unfortunately, the paint is um, kind of flaking off the uh, flex, so I don't want to remove it too much. But there's the telephone, the very same telephone that's seen in this episode and uh, when he returned in the second series. It was parked right outside the station. I mean, it's a fairly standard prop, but it, what I find interesting is it's got um, screw holes and the remains of a sticky pad uh, on the bottom of it, presumably used to hold the phone to the desk so that when the puppet was using it, it, uh, it didn't fly off everywhere with his hand movements. Uh, I also have, I also got from the auction, uh, yes, the two diplomas from Sheriff Ball's office wall. And we've covered those on a previous fab fact on the podcast. Um, one is his uh, his uh, Law Enforcement Officers Academy training course in police brutality. And the other one is his diploma to certify that he has never seen a Rolls Royce in Badwater County. Thus reflecting the events of this episode. And again, you can't see these on audio, but you can hear them. There you go. I, uh, I hope that... Um, that was enjoyable for you. Need to talk, Einstein. And, uh, yeah, slightly, um, I suppose it says something about this episode that I can say more about the props used in it um, than I can about the story as such, because it's not really... Life is in my hands. ...too interesting. I mean, I don't really care about Sam as such. I'm not really invested in... Uh, What's your proposition? ...in his plight. Tiger's now got to go in in exchange for Sam. So going back to uh, Sheriff Ball's telephone, I was rather um, pleased to find, actually, I, I knew that it was uh, his his uh, regular telephone uh, in this episode when he came back in the second series, but I was surprised to see it turn up in uh, in Hawknest, uh, in the White House, a couple of times uh, in season one. I think it's in the Christmas episode, and it's in... Uh, Zero's Finest Hour and My Kingdom for a Zeef, possibly. So it's a, it's a very versatile prop for a, a basic telephone made of wood. Well, I guess it's going to be a gunfight at Oki's Corral. Tiger, it's suicide. So yeah, basically I waffled all over what amounts to... Get Sam Oki out of that cabin as soon as you can. Yeah, they're going to send in Tiger to, uh, in exchange for Sam. And what looks like there, a very rare shot for Terrorhawks, actual outdoor location filming. There's a shot of uh, a, a cactus framed looking up at the sun, and those were real clouds. That was the real sun, and those were real clouds. Very unusual for this show. It's you and me, you cubic freak. Oh, but um, yeah, I can't say this is an especially thrilling showdown. Well, there we see Sam Oki's uh, the, the product of his long night's work. Trap! That's not a real cube. Oh, thank you. Mommy. Oh, oh, right. Back, Mary, I'll handle it. But thank you for explaining the obvious. 
yeah, it's uh, made of wood and painted red. Well, painted with the little uh, red mouth thing on. And there's another one. Which he's also wasted two shots on. Dummy. So, yeah, it's not an especially thrilling climax. Where's the real one? I like that it's um, shot like a, an old western, especially that shot of Tiger's feet there. Also, that brief moment of us hearing his thoughts there when he said, where's the real one? He didn't move his mouth. Oh, tripwire. Put in the right place, Captain. And another wooden zeroid, uh, wooden cube even. Are you enjoying our little confrontation, clone? No tricks, hey, Zelda? I'm afraid I lied. Look out! Oh, two more wooden ones, but there's the real one. You should learn to count, Neinstein. Oh dear, he's out of bullets. And she's going to use the cube to taunt him for a bit. But remember, there'll be another clone to replace me. And here it comes. Allow me to enjoy the moment of your demise. But rest assured, the, the ne next shot will kill you, clone. And one day... You will be the last clone, Dr. Einstein. Yeah, that uh, that line of Zelda's was used in the, the single, I think, the uh, of the Terrorhawks theme. There we go, is Zero, blown up the cube. And I love this as well. Thanks, Zero. Poor old Zero on the, on the uh, cactus. Oh, it's a, it's a bit of a... Ouch! Oof, a prickly situation up here, sir. Ooh, ooh, ouch. Oh dear. <laughs> but I love that he gets to ride on a He'll be fine. On a on a little cushion up front in Hudson. Your mom a bit tender in the nether regions. <laughs> Not you, Sergeant Major. How's the arm, Tiger? I'll live. Yeah, Sam Oki's rescue was so important that we don't even get to see it. We're just told he's off screen, he's fine. And that's it. Hudson is leaving Badwater County, but I just buy the green. That's green. Rolls-Royce is on the south road! Oh, no! And that's more than Sheriff Ball can take, and that's the end of Gunfight at Oki's Corral. And of course, we know that um, we can understand why Sheriff Bull is so frustrated at uh, at, um, at Kilroy's report there, because as I can confirm from one of these uh, lovely diplomas that were on the wall in his office, he has one of these diplomas to certify that he has never seen a Rolls-Royce uh, Rolls even in Badwater County in over 20 years. So he doesn't want to he doesn't want to have wasted all that time that he uh, he spent studying for this. Uh, there you go, a little bit of uh, backstory there on, on Sheriff Bull. I love that they were slipping little jokes like that into the set. I'm really happy to own some things from this episode. I don't have too much in the way of props and bits and pieces. As for this episode, eh, it's okay, you know, it's it's not quite as dull as some of the early episodes. Getting towards the uh, the sillier stuff later on, some nice stuff with Zero. Uh, nice to have uh, a bit of uh, a bit more of a location for what where all this stuff is happening with the introduction of Badwater County. Good old Deputy Kilroy and Sheriff Bull. That's yes. the uh, Anderson Burr uh, thing. I, I, Sorry. Very good. Yeah. And he was a cowboy. He was dressed as a cowboy. That's what he was trying to do. Oh, Chris. We, 
Oh, but really? I can see the a... cowboy hat now. Look, just below the table. Right. They've worn that. Yeah, I, I wasn't convinced by yeah. it really, but thanks, Chris. Yeah. I think I think he just sort of scrabbled around for whatever he had. Yeah, he didn't have a, a proper cowboy's outfit, so he mm. went for that sort of Edwardian uh, dress. Yeah. Anyway, who doesn't love a bit of Terror Hawks? <laughs> well, the people who don't like Terror uh, Hawks. But maybe yeah. they enjoyed that. Maybe they did. Yeah, I'm always happy to have a bit of Terror Hawks around. Uh, and um, we've got some interesting stuff coming up for Terror Hawks Day this year on 1010. Um, oh, have we? It's the 10th of October. Yes, but we'll talk about that nearer the time, because right now we are oh, five months away. Um, you can't do that. <laughs> I will do I that. Hate it when that's you do all that. that's happening. Sorry. I mean, there's oh. lots of things I do that you hate. So, thank you very much, Chris. Chris will be back next week with more randomizer. If you'd like to just listen to the randomizer and lot not listen to me and Richard talking, you can just search Fair the enough. Jerry Anderson Randomizer podcast, where it's got its own podcast, and you can just listen to Chris. Yes, I've heard it's just quite like good. Mm. So, well, who did you hear that from? Chris. Yeah. To be fair, it was, yeah. It was yeah. Chris. Yeah. yeah. Um, but do pop along and subscribe there and leave Chris a rating but also leave us a rating and a review on this podcast too please because uh, without your validation we are nothing that's very true yeah it is uh, Richard James anything else before we wrap up this podcast no I'm spent brilliant okay well I think that uh, is it next week or the week mm-hmm. after anyway in the next couple of, couple of weeks it's our third anniversary so <gasps> I don't know if we're doing Aww. something special but we'll certainly do something probably just another podcast to be honest so uh we'll yeah. see you for our um pre-anniversary and anniversary podcasts uh, in the next couple of weeks yeah we'll see you then have a great week podstron goodbye bye now stage one complete let's go Yes, yeah, so I'm just I'm just on. looking yes. to, to see what the third anniversary. Oh, it's leather. It's our leather anniversary, Jamie. I can give you those um, lederhosen oh, at last. Oh, great. I've been saving them for a special occasion. Well, I'm so, so glad. Have you worn them in for me or? Oh, of course. I'm wearing them now. <laughs> oh, I wonder what the squeak was. Yeah, That's good. Yeah, and that's do you have to powder laserhosen before you uh, put them on? Yeah, well, yes, a little bit of talcum powder to get them on, and yep. a little bit of WD-40 to get them off. Right, okay. Well, that'll right, explain uh, the of state of them when they arrive. Yeah. Good. Yeah, uh, well, nice? I, yeah, so you've got me laid a hose, and I, um, I'm still working on yep. your gift. Okay. But, um, I'm just going to end up with an old dog chew or something, aren't I? Yeah, a bit of chamois <sighs> leather. That'll be all right. Great. Yeah. Yeah, okay. thanks. I'll at mm. least, um, you know, maybe draw your face on it or something, so... Oh, thanks. Yeah, it makes yeah. the world a difference. This is getting more and more offensive, isn't it? I'll go away and think about a gift. You have a lovely week. And, um, All right. Happy Bye pre-anniversary. Now. Bye. Yeah. Oh, I must Bye. get these laid hosen off. Oh. Oh. You have been listening to the Jerry Anderson Podcast. Wasn't it fun? You have been listening to an Anderson Entertainment production.